from the Film Society of Lincoln Center, you're listening to The Close-Up. This week we're highlighting two films, James Gray's epic The Lost City of Z and Terrence Davies' period drama A Quiet Passion, both of which premiered at the 54th New York Film Festival last fall and begin their official theatrical runs on April 14th. The Lost City of Z stars Charlie Hunnam as the real-life explorer Percy Fawcett, who at the dawn of the 20th century repeatedly journeyed into the Amazon in search of proof of an undiscovered ancient civilization. The film had its world premiere as the closing night selection at the 54th New York Film Festival. And ahead of its public screening, writer-director James Gray joined co-stars Robert Pattinson and Sienna Miller for a press conference moderated by Kent Jones. Let's go to that now. When did you read this material for the first time, the book, the David Grand book? I was sent the book uh, in late 2008 yeah. uh, by Brad Pitt, mm-hmm. which is a strange sentence. <laughs> um, it hadn't been published yet. Jimmy Jam, take a look at this, brother. We just bought it. <laughs> so I read it, and yeah. I thought, this is fantastic. I'll never be yeah. able to make it, so let's go. <laughs> so I, I started... I, they were very nice to me and said, we think that uh, you would do a nice job with this, uh, something that's abundantly not clear to you in the room today. So I said, okay, I'm gonna take this on, and uh, it you know, became impossible. <laughs> and here we are. And here um, we are, it's very strange. Yeah, and what you saw in the material is, if I could just be allowed a little bit of interpretive leeway and say the pursuit of the sublime, it actually didn't start that way. Uh, it started, I was very interested in his character, uh, and it had to do with the striving, you know, the social class thing, which I thought was very interesting. That uh, here was a guy who was of great accomplishment in many ways, but was still extremely upset at himself and the world. And I suppose that uh, what happened to me was that Z took on a kind of a it wasn't, I mean, if he had found Z or Z, whatever, if he had found Z, it wouldn't have really mattered, ultimately. In fact, it would have been kind of an anticlimax. Yeah, right. Because it was clearly the thing that he, he was using to, like, project all of his disappointments in his life mm-hmm. uh, onto it. Like, uh, there's the thing at the end where Rob says in that scene where he says, if, you know, if you basically, if you f- I just think that Z is, won't be all that it's cracked up to be and you find mm-hmm. with you find, when you find it. And I felt that that was the whole key to it, that... In a sense, it was the guy's method of coping with life's indignities. Mm-hmm. So uh, that was the thing that stuck out first when I read the book, yeah. which is weird because it's not, I mean, if you read the book, the book is quite good, by the way. It's, in fact, it's excellent, which is why you shouldn't read it because then you'll say, <laughs> oh, it's, good. It's, not as good as the, it's not as good as the book. But the, uh, the, the half the book is like, you know, basically like, me or a version of me, you know, like should be in the shtetl, 32 degrees below zero, like do you know at the candlelight? It's a writer, David Grant, who's wonderful, like going to the jungle. So like yeah. that's half the book. The other half is Fawcett's life. Right. So I I didn't want to do like a thing where we're following basically me in the jungle because I'm not all that interesting. Well, so so uh, I decided just to stick with a straight on thing, but it was not an, it was sort of a weird adaptation for that reason because mm-hmm. it was not a straight ahead like, okay, here's the narrative, it's very clear, and the script took a while as a consequence. But then this also became very much the story of a man and a woman too. Well, yeah, because I had wanted, I didn't want it to be a biopic. I didn't want it to be only about Fawcett. I wanted it to be, that's why it's great that everybody is here on stage with me, because what I had wanted it to be was almost like a a comment on an age and a comment on not only who who we were then, but who we are now, because in a weird way, I feel like we fight the same battles. You know, obviously, one look at the front page of the newspaper tells you that, you know, uh, the patriarchy is in full force. So I, I, I thought... It's a little it was, shaky, yeah. but yeah, in some parts of in the country. In some part. But uh, so I, I thought that, you know, Sienna's character was extremely important because, uh, you know, the idea of the... Ex- I've talked about this before, but the extension of our sympathies is crucial to making something that has uh, some kind of lasting impact. And uh, that is ultimately what you're going for. And so I tried to give her character as much 
importance and humanity in the story as Fawcett and, and, and Rob's character and Angus's character. In other words, everybody would have their moment to be in the film and to, and to, and to really, uh, like I said, to, to make sure that the extension of our sympathies was in full force. I hope this makes some shred of sense. I don't know, you know. At a certain point, you know, it's like that, I've joked with you, but it's the Woody Allen, you know, thing in Annie Hall, the subtitle, you know, Christ, I sound like FM radio. That's me. <laughs> it's true, I don't get out much. Well, yeah. <laughs> And yet here you are on the stage, and it's closing night. It's you know. very odd. It's um, very odd. The movie was finished three weeks ago. Delivered three weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the idea that I'm here now is incredibly weird. Back from the jungle. Yeah, yeah well, it's like, it's like, here it is, screen it, you know? <laughs> Could we talk about the experience of shooting in the jungle and how difficult it was to get film? And, you know, for you guys, I would imagine that, like, you know, there was a certain level of discomfort. Um, I don't miss the jungle. You so I don't miss the jungle at all. <laughs> <laughs> it was pretty, but no, I don't miss it. No. Uh huh. Okay. <laughs> it was horrible. What do you mean? Yeah. You, you, of course, of course, you shouldn't miss it. It was terrible. <laughs> <laughs> it's like I said. First of all, I, speaking for myself, I'm Rob did great, by the way. Yeah. But I'm, as I said, genetically engineered to be in the, uh, you know, a, an accountant in the shtetl. So when you put me at 100 degrees and 100% humidity and bugs right. and the whole thing and snakes and crocodiles and the whole thing. But we, it was a ridiculous, I, I never told Rob this and thank God he's, thank God we're months now past, but um, there's this scene in the movie where they're pushing the, the rafts, very shallow water in the Don Diego River is where we were shooting. And at one point, <laughs> close your ears Rob, I see this thing run up the side and I, oh, I can't be a crocodile. So I, I called over the, uh, the, the, one of the guides that we had, the Colombian guides, who were, by the way, terrific. Mm-hmm. And I said, I said uh, are there, there aren't crocodiles in this water. He says, no, there is nothing like that, nothing, nothing. I mean, you know where this is going. So we do another take, and I see the goddamn thing. I mean... I'm like, that's a crocodile. So I called him, it's a crocodile. No, 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 it's not a crocodile. It's a black caiman. <laughs> so of course, I, I, I get out the sat phone or whatever, I look up black caiman, and it's like, a variety of crocodile considerably more fearsome and dangerous <laughs> than the standard Florida crocodile. I'm like, that's the worst news I ever heard. Right. So it was bad. You know, apparently an insect with Charlie, Charlie, who's now in Montenegro, who couldn't be He's here. He's in the jungles of Montenegro. Jungles, don't, don't ask me. But uh, he, he, he was like late two hours to set one day, and he was never late, you know, and I said, well, what's wrong? And then I hear that he has had an insect crawl in his ear and is starting to eat his eardrum. Yeah. And uh, it kind of, that was week two, and it kind of went downhill from there. <laughs> It's funny because you say all this stuff, you, you know, you hear about Werner Herzog and Francis Coppola and all that, and you think you're smarter and better prepared. Well, you're not, and you can't, and you get down there, and it's, you know, it's brutal. Yeah. So, Sienna, there were no crocodiles in Ireland, I guess, right? No, no okay. Belfast crocodiles. <laughs> you had no problems. You were so cosseted, and you had only Belfast to deal with. the corset. The corset wasn't nice. <laughs> This is why you guys are in front of the camera with a script. Is that answer? (laughs) (laughs) Just got chilly in here. Uh, Yeah. Can you talk about why it was important to shoot on 35 millimeter film Mm -hmm. and whether you had to fight to get that? Shot on 35 by the great Darius Kanji. It's a very easy answer, okay? 35 millimeter is better. I did a test. Well, no, it's just a fact. Darius and I did a blind test at the beginning. First of all, I've never shot digital, so I'm not the right person to talk about this really with because I hate it. But we shot a test with the RED, the Alexa. I didn't shoot the Alexa 65 because it wasn't in full bloom yet. But uh, the RED, the Alexa, and I believe the Sony was the third, and then Kodak. And we filmed, you know, we basically watched them blind. I said, oh, number three is way better than the others. And the producers were bummed because it was, it was the Kodak. It was about seven dollars or $50,000 more, which is a lot. 
because it means three or four days of shooting. But at a certain point, and it's much harder, but at a certain point you think to yourself, at least I did, the audience does not see how easy it is for you. Congratulations, it's easy. We can see what we're getting, it's a thing, we only, it's a chip, a thing, no problem. It's, but it's not, it's not better for you. It's, the better for you is to watch the end result, right? No picture ever said, shot on digital, but please excuse the fact that it looks a little crappy because you know, it's easier for the filmmakers. It doesn't say that. So um, now having said that, <laughs> what we did do was ridiculous. We had a film loader who we had to train out of Bogota and he looked astonishingly like Sid Vicious. <laughs> and we had this changing bag, and, and you know, as you do on the set, and he would sit there and he'd be like this. For, for like way longer than it should have taken, right? So I would sit there every day and watch him change in the film, and I'd be like... And then they would take the film out, and they would load it in this crappy little cardboard box, and this little Cessna single-engine crop duster, we're in Columbia, remember, would take the thing and go off this little runway and you'd see it flying off and then it would fly it to the local airport which would fly it to Bogota, which would fly it to Miami, which would fly it to London. This was every day. So you'd always have this thing around noon every day. I don't know if Anthony Katagis, my producer, is here, but you'd sit there at around noon, you'd get the call, CineLab in London, did they get the stock, did they get it, did they get it, did they get it, did they got it, they got it, they got it. They got it. <laughs> and then three days, of course, went by when, guess what happened? Did they get it, they get it? Uh, it's been held in customs uh, in Bogota. He, the man there is not sure of what it is. And then there were other days when we finally got that release, but then there were other days where the film got very badly damaged, two days of shooting got very badly damaged, so it was not without cost. But I'm telling you, it, it, the movie, whether you like or hate it, it could not look this way on digital. It just couldn't. Now, another thing that's important is that the computer that I had down there was not working because it's so humid. So maybe, and I'm just saying this just to make myself feel better, if I had brought the digital camera down there, it would have taken a crap because my computer wasn't working. So it was very, it's ridiculously humid. I, I should stop talking, I'm sorry. Well, first off, congratulations on a very fantastic film. Uh, one to address one of the elephants in the room. This is obviously a movie about Europeans in the Amazon. Um, comparisons to Werner Herzog's work is gonna be inevitable. Did you familiarize yourself with Herzog's work in the Amazon, Fitzcarraldo and Aguirre? And how do you feel, and if you did, how do you feel that this film differed from those films and what it tried to achieve? Well, I didn't have to familiarize myself with Herzog. I had seen Herzog movies, you know, I saw Aguirre probably in 1982. I'm, I'm a thousand years old, so I've seen these movies a long time ago. In fact, Kent can relate to this. I think I saw the Aguirre and Fitzcarraldo in a double feature at the theater called the Thalia, which was uptown. Ah, uh, yeah. With the worst sight lines the in the worst history. Sight line, right? You yeah. felt like you were taking off in an airplane, like yeah. it had this weird yeah. dip and yeah. the yeah. thing. Yeah. Um, the rake was up. Yeah, yeah it, was, it was horrible. But in a way, it was great. Uh, I, to be honest with you, I, 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 I want to say this, make this very clear that I think Herzog is a truly great director, and I think those movies are brilliant. So... That's the, that's, I need to get that out there, but I wasn't interested in exploring what, what Herzog did, because I don't think the movies are about the same thing, really. In the end, here's, it's, it's not my job to sort of revisit or do a constant homage, I think. I think I, ha I have to, whether I fail or not is another issue, but I have to, I have to take what's already existing and try and either take it a step further or in another direction. And um, I don't know, I mean, f starting very simply, there's no woman of any consequence in anything that the, in the Herzog films that you're talking about. Yeah, And there's not really a, well, I, I, I don't want to get into this because it sounds like I'm bad-mouthing Herzog. The movies are amazing, but I'm just saying about what they don't do. Look, I, I said this last week, um, pontificating as I can at the, this New Yorker thing I did. If you look at Herzog and, and, and Francis's movie, which is of course different, it's not the Amazon, but the jungle and the hardships and making a film in that environment. And then you look at 
like I had just seen this film by George Cukor called Life of Her Own with Lana Turner and Ray Milland, which is not a great Cukor movie, but a good one. And you watch it and the, the sense of mise-en-scene and, and how he directs actors and where he puts them in relation to the camera and so forth, it's incredible. And I can never achieve that. Forget my lack of talent compared to George Cukor for a second. There's not the level of craft. You don't make 60, 70, 80 movies like they did. So there's no way I'm ever gonna have that ability to master mise-en-scene. And I don't have 240 days or 270 days, or whatever Francis took, the entire Air Force of the Philippines. You know, I don't have that <laughs> at my disposal. Um, and Werner Herzog made his film in a very different way. So knowing that the, the means of production are going to, in a way, justify the aesthetic to some degree, that what I thought was important was to, to, to explore the idea that every character uh, matters in the film, and every character's humanity matters in the film, and that extends, of course, to the indigenous, to, to, to uh, that if they have to be other, if, if the movie's about a, a blonde-haired Nazi-looking guy, Aryan guy, then at least I can justify the indigenous people as to having their own humanity, you know, a life that is not dependent on ours. I don't know if this makes any sense. So I was trying to distinguish the film in that way um, from those great filmmakers because that's the area that I can explore without the limitations of lack of talent or time or whatever. I, I don't know if that... <laughs> I wanted to just ask the actors how they oriented themselves within the world of this movie. Um, I would imagine there would be different answers, but then did James show you guys anything for preparation? Any films or anything? Hmm. I don't, I mean, how, you, how we oriented through it. He's yes. an incredible collaborator yeah. and, and, and you know, completely available. And this, this conversation, James and I first met and talked about doing this maybe seven years ago. With that old, yeah. Um, but I mean, it was really just, I think for, for me specifically, it was finding a way of making her not just the wife, you know, finding mm -hmm. depth and substance because in that era, she was really struggling against the confines of a very male misogynistic mm -hmm. society. Their relationship was completely specific and unique in that they were Buddhist and he was pro her being a suffragette. You know, yes. she, was, she was very radical. Um, obviously the film wasn't about her, but we wanted to find the substance and, and James and I constantly worked and explored ways of making her substantial and, mm. and her, of her being the sounding board and the bouncing board for really experiencing what it would be like to be left and, mm -hmm. and experiencing that, not just sort of seeing her go through it, which is very often the case in films and parts that I've played it's mm -hmm. you know you're the woman and you do your best to find depth but James is extraordinary and incredibly sensitive and understanding of women and appreciative of them um, mm -hmm. and so our conversations really revolved around around digging and 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 endless talks and availability mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean I couldn't really have had more of an immersive experience I mean I, I was just <laughs> in the story, <laughs> I mean, it didn't really have to do too much work. I was just in a crocodile-infested river for the, the entire time. As you know now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I found that out on the last day when there was a flash flood, I and mean, then about 30 came in, all came <laughs> like, oh on that last day, yeah. And we were stuck on a sandbank, surrounded by vicious caiman and uh, arbor vipers in the trees. I didn't know that. During the flood, <laughs> that last yeah, night? Yeah, they were coming. You could see them floating past. <laughs> totally oblivious. The scene that Rob, by the way, Rob, I have to say, I haven't seen you in forever. I, I, I love uh, what you did for the film. And it's totally, you're, it's like, you, it's like a erasure of yourself in a great way. Um, uh, it's log rolling today, by the way. We're just going to keep complimenting each other on the stage. And you can watch. Um, <laughs> Uh, the scene that he's talking about is a campfire thing between Charlie and, and, and Rob where they're talking about, and it seems like the first trip is going all to hell. And we had shot the medium, or I think I shot the close-ups, and I was going to go back for a medium close-up. Wow. <laughs> I'll be here all week. Thank you. I'll just stand, shall I? <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.
Should we all just move it to the floor and should we have a little... Instagram's about to explode. I have to tell the story now, you know. I have to tell, I'm telling the story. I got I sh- a story I should for tell you. that story. I'll you can, story. you should. Yeah. You should. You anyway, to wrap it up quickly about this other thing before he tells us another story. They were, she was shooting this close-up <laughs> and the water started to rise. This is what he's talking about. The water started to rise and they said, oh, there's a f- the river is going to flood the whole set. We were on the banks of the river. And I said, yeah, it'll take some time. Let's finish shooting the medium close-up. Sorry. No, no, Mr. Gray, really, you need to leave the set now. Now. And I look over and literally the river is going like this. There was a rainstorm up in the mountains and the water came down. And when the, the set was overtaken by, by the river two minutes. And people, like, people literally grabbing stuff, running away. And I, now I hear their caimans. Tell the story, Thomas. So I broke my nose, right, on this movie. Um, not in a very heroic way. It was my last day of shooting. It was my last shot, in fact. And uh, I had a fake moustache, because obviously I'm a child and can't grow a moustache yet. <laughs> but, uh, but James, as it was our last day, said, can I have your phone and look at some of the photos of your experience in Colombia? I said, of course. I gave him my phone, he was flicking through. And there was a video of me doing a backflip on a beach. And he was like, that's not you. There's no way that can, and I'm not the type of person to challenge. And I was like, well, just watch me. So I stood up, I had these stupid leather boots on. I tried to do a backflip and just broke my face. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I remember, I remember, I mean, I've been a gymnast since I was a little kid and it's been years since I haven't really landed one. And I remember hitting my face on the floor going, shit, that didn't happen. I, I stood up, I thought I'd knock my teeth out and the makeup artist was laughing at me, and then when she saw my face, it went from like, ah, oh, medic, medic! And the guy came over and realigned my nose, and, oh, and there was God. blood pouring out, and I got a big gash across the top of my nose. I was like, it's over, I'm done. And, and then Anthony Katagas came up to me and was like, Tom, listen, we're gonna send you to hospital, but can you finish your last shot? And I was like, <laughs> Yeah, sure. So that to stick my tash back on, and and then it was the last shot of the movie. It was us being carried down to the river, and uh, and then I went to Bogota with no one. They sent me to Bogota. No one spoke English. They kept trying to pull my trousers down at one point, and they they were like, I was like, no, it's my nose. It's my nose that's broken. And they injected something in my leg, and I guess that made it all better. And then I went home and got it fixed. But. Uh, but yeah, so it was, a, it was the craziest end to any movie I've ever made in my whole life, or ever will make, you know? I, I certainly hope so, but I will tell you that, uh, just to make it clear, I, I didn't dare you. What happened was yes, I was you kidding. Did. I saw you do this amazing Donald, you remember Donald O'Connor singing in the rain, making, make him laugh when he walks up, up the, the wall, wall and does the flip? Okay. So he does that, and I say, yeah, you, you didn't do that. That's, C, that's CGI, that's uh, camera tricks and mirrors. Joking. Oh, yeah, are you saying, no, I didn't do that? I said, no, no, that's a joke. No, you do. I, I can do that. I said, no, it's camera tricks, mirrors. And then he starts doing it. I said, no, 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 don't do it. It was like sort of a slow motion. And you had the period boots on and you're doing a flip in the jungle. Yeah. Good luck to us. Remember Marvel asking me what happened? Marvel were like, what happened to your face? I was like, oh, I just fell over. And Bash it's out now. I I'm in trouble now, I James. Thanks, that. mate. I can't believe it. I've been in the jungle for months. I can't believe it. I just screwed up my nose doing a flip. I can't believe it. <laughs> That was a bad day. Yeah. I'm asking this question with uh, almost 80-year-old uh, eyes here. But your magnificent entertainment is the kind of film that 50, 60, 70 years ago would have been made by a big studio like MGM or by an Alexander Corda. And I'm wondering, since it's bearing the Amazon Studios logo. And since this is not the first time in this festival that we have seen new platforms like Amazon and Netflix that are bringing movies to the New York Film Festival. And I'm curious to know what your relationship has been with Amazon and really how you feel Amazon is going to be a kind of major player here in shaping the entertainment that citizens and, and, and people of this country are going to be, and the world, are going to be watching here in the near future. 
I, I have an excellent relationship with Amazon. Uh, it started when I needed paper towels, and I would go online and click. Um, it's extended to books and uh, everything else. Uh, they're an excellent supplier now of eggs, I've found. Uh, and now apparently cinema. So uh, there is that. Uh, I, I did not make it with Amazon. They, I made it with, with, you know, with equity, and, which was great because they allowed me to make the film, us to make the film that we all wanted to make. And then uh, they acquired the film a, a couple of months ago. Uh, they're great as far as I can tell so far. A uh, movie kind of doesn't come out until, you know, five million years from now. But it uh, seems like they let me play it here, so thanks for that. And I think they're great so far. <clears throat> the, 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 the real truth, I mean, I'm of course being an ass, but, which I'm excellent at, but, but the real honest truth, truthful answer is that I think it reflects a moribund system because uh, I don't think that this film is... Uh, a film that is so inaccessible that you know it should be made outside the system and struggling all that. This is the kind of movie that I think uh, you know may maybe a be, you know whatever you think of the movie. This is the kind of movie that you know you would think studios should be making, right? It has some scale to it, and that thing. but they don't. I mean, they let's you know, they, they you know I I love the people on the stage very much, and I love Tom, but they make superheroes. That's what they're doing now, and. That's, that's fine. Yes. There's nothing wrong with that. There's, you know, but, but there is, what is wrong with it is that that's the only thing they're making. They've become sclerotic, you know, it's like, a, it's like, a, they're so risk averse that there's nothing that you can possibly do now within that system that's, uh, that has any interesting aspect to it at all. So all my friends who are directors, none of, none of us is making films that start with studios. You know, we all start making films with other money and then the studio either requires it or in my case, they, you know, bury it. And, and it, it turns out great. No, uh, so I, I have no idea how it's gonna work out. But I think it reflects a, certainly a changing, a changing world, you know, with the, with the movies. And I, I think it's a sadness because, you know, Truffaut said, he said, great cinema is part truth, part spectacle. So what you have, when you have a disappearing middle, is you have a lot of spectacle with no truth, and now you have movies made for $4 that are all truth but no spectacle. That middle, which was very beautiful, which was Alfred Hitchcock's world, which was John Ford's world, which actually was Orson Welles when he did Citizen Kane's world, is gone. That's a sadness, isn't it? So hopefully Amazon will fill that hole. But it's, it's not just an applause line either, is it? Because it's a cultural treasure that the United States had. You know, this thing about the cinema, the studio system, and I'm not talking about the studio system just like 1948 or whatever, because obviously the new Hollywood made incredible films. Um, something is lost, it's like a, and, and it's this, the history of film is very weird because it's like for centuries, there was of course no cinema in human existence, so of course the cinema is only, sound cinema is 1927, right? So you're talking a very short period of time and look how many great films were made really in the first 30, 40 years of cinema's existence. It's like the movies were meant to be. They're in us. When I, I love Wagner's operas, uh, something that is, has endeared me greatly to my uh, elder Jewish relatives. Um, no, but I, I do love Wagner's operas. And when you see The Ring, it feels like Wagner was reaching for something that's past the opera. And I, I, I know that Wagner would have been a movie director and probably a great one. The, the, the reason I'm saying this is that the, the human race needed cinema, and now we have it, and I'm worried about it. And it's been a very short period. Anyway, I don't know what I'm saying. That might have been very low. I just, it's a question for Tom about how we cultivated the father-son relationship. That's a, that's a good question. I think that started very early on in the process. Charlie and I 
immediately hit it off and uh, and became very close and very good friends. And uh, and the way James works, he throws you in the deep end. There's no there's no real like setup. There's no rehearsal. He just that's it. You go. And uh, and working with Charlie was something that I really really learned a lot from because he's someone that who prepares more than anyone I've ever worked with. You ask Charlie a question about anything and he has it ready to go. And, uh, and that was very useful for me because it meant that we could sit down and really break scenes down and talk about where we'd come from, from the book, from the script, and, and what we wanted to bring to the screen. Um, especially in the jungle, especially, I mean, it was terrible. It was a terrible place to be. And, and when, you, when you make a movie like this, that it has to be as realistic as possible. And Charlie and I, we, I mean, and you guys too, I mean, I saw the movie just with, with you guys we really were thrown in at the deep end and to be there with someone, you bond very quickly and you form very strong relationships and I think that's what came across on screen. Angus, what was your experience in the jungle? <laughs> and by the way, you're amazing in the movie. Uh, I actually had a very different, I actually kind of enjoyed the jungle because uh, um, it was a very different experience from all the other actors who were basically eating an apple a day and starving themselves in order to look uh, like cadavers, and uh, and I heard that there was this one camp where the actors were staying with no, and they were basically you know l you know no TV, no Wi-Fi, none of this, and and starving themselves. And then there was the director's little area where you know, and the guy can really cook pasta, <laughs> and he's True. been boasting about it in, in <laughs> Belfast all this time. So so I basically moved into his camp. And, and every night we would come back and this guy after a 12, 14 hour day would then go to the kitchens and start cooking up the pasta for the whole crew for like 14 people and stuff. And boy, was it good. And I had a good excuse to eat because, you know, the character was actually eating all the caramels and all of this stuff. So, so I, could, I basically ate two bowls of big, gigantic pasta every night. And it was a really good time in the jungle. But there is one thing which I've just realized, because I used to go into the, we were working on the river a lot, and you could see the, the glacier, which had been there for a million years, about 50 miles up in the Sierra Nevadas, and there was this water coming down in the river, and it was like cool, and there was the jungle, and it was boiling hot, but the water was cool, and you could, I would get in it up to here and go, everybody, come on, get in the water, look, you can drink it, and I was like, well, it tastes really good, come on, everybody, and everybody was just staring at me like, this guy's fucking crazy. And I've just realized why, because there were crocodiles. No, no, it's black caiman. Black caiman. Um, it is true, we did make a lot of pasta. <laughs> I had a, a large amount of pasta boxes shipped to us and brought to us in large suitcases, like, you know, like it was contraband. And burgers, because, too. Right? Uh, the burgers one day. Oh, uh, the, my assistant drove... 50 bajillion miles, this was at the end of the shoot, to Barranquilla in Colombia, which is a major city, and bought, you know, beef. Th that was really at the end, we were pretty struggling. I mean, I, I had my ritual, which was my cornflakes box in the morning, my Cliff Bar and banana lunch, and my pasta dinner. I lost 20 pounds or something, and uh, we all looked like homeless men, you know. We had beards down to here, and... Anyway, we did, we, you guys did eat a lot of pasta. Yeah. We also all made a great movie. Thank you. Thank you. A Quiet Passion stars Cynthia Nixon as Emily Dickinson in this biopic tracing the poet's journey from young schoolgirl to reclusive artist. The film showed as a special Film Comment Presents screening at the 54th New York Film Festival. Following the screening, writer-director Terence Davies joined star Cynthia Nixon for a press conference led by the Film Society's editorial director, Michael Koreski. Let's go to that now. Um, uh, before, we, you know, we'll turn it over to the audience for some Q&As uh, eventually, but just to get started, um, Terrence, this is your first, um, I hate using the word biopic, but this is your first uh, drama based on the life of a real person, and that's a big change in your career. Can you talk about your approach and how you, did you feel fidelity? Because obviously it's a very written and beautifully constructed fictional film in its way, so what did, how did you approach your first biopic? <laughs> Well, I discovered her 
poetry when I was 18. Um, on television, um, Claire Bloom was reading her poetry. Um, the first one was, because I could not stop for death, he kindly stopped for me. So I ran out and bought it. Um, never thought, I was still a lowly bookkeeper in a, in a, in a counselling practice. Um, and then about six years ago, um, I started rereading the poems and realized just how wonderful they are. And then I, d I decided I really had to know about more about her. And I read six autobiographies, I beg your pardon. And this, this, made me, this really intrigued me. Here's this woman who withdraw, withdraws from the world, you know, writes this wonderful poetry, um, and has this extraordinary inner, rich inner life. Because you don't have to go all over the world to have an inner life. You can stay in one place. But what drew me to it was her spiritual quest. She oscillates between is there a God, is there not a God, is there a soul, is there not a soul? If there's a soul and there's no God, what do you do? And I had that crisis when I was, I was a very devout Catholic until I was 22, so I really responded to that. But also um, the fact that she wasn't recognized in her own lifetime, that more than anything else uh, really in a way sort of angered me. I thought she deserved to be better known. Um, it's wonderful poetry. I think she's the greatest American poet of the 19th century. That's why I wanted to do it. And uh, I mean, all of the films that aren't, that you've made that aren't based on your childhood, they have uh, very strong and very skeptical, often female protagonists. Um, it, you just really seem to identify with these women. Can you talk a little bit about, this just reminds me so much of House of Mirth and Deep Blue Sea. There really seems to be a connection you have with these women. But probably it's the story. I mean, they happen to be women. Um, but when I was growing up, all the big hits of the period were all about women. Love is a many splendid thing. Um, Oh, Magnificent Obsession, All That Heaven Allows. They were the big, big hits of the period. So I grew up with that, and I grew up uh, with my sisters and my mother. I mean, I'm the youngest of 10, seven surviving. But I loved my sisters and their friends. Their friends came around on a Friday, and I was allowed to go for the makeup, and I can still smell Fridays. So this part, part of that is true as well. Um, but also, I think what is true is I think that because Emily... Is she's an ordinary human, but she happens to be a genius. She has one layer missing. So she responds to the world in a very, very visceral way. And she's, in a way, an outsider. And I've always been an outsider. I've never been a participant in life. Um, I've always been an observer. I'm, I wouldn't do anything uh, sort of adventurous or dangerous. I'm too afraid. I'm far too timid. Um, so I know what that feels like. And um, so you could both answer this one. At what point did Cynthia come aboard to um, portray Emily Dickinson? It seems, now that we've seen it, it seems like a natural choice. Um, but how did the relationship first happen? Who contacted who? Well, we met about four, five, six years ago um, about a film I did, that never, we didn't get the money for. I'd never forgotten her. Um, and when we were, I started writing the script, um, one of my uh, producers, Sol, uh, was also um, a stills photographer. And there's only one extant photograph of Emily when she's 17. And I said, well, he said, I I'll superimpose um, Cynthia's face on it. And she looks exactly like her. And I knew she was right. I saw her face every when I was writing the three drafts, and I just hoped that she would say yes. She said yes, and she stuck with it for four years. So she was very, very loyal to the project. And if she had said no, I have no idea who I would have cast. So tell me, Cynthia, when you first came onto this project, Yes, well, uh, as I said, Terrence, as Terence said, we, we met, he auditioned me for a film that, um, uh, that never came off. Um, and then I hadn't heard from him. And uh, a few years after that, I just, I, I, I received this, this offer, this amazing script, um, the, a biography of Emily Dickinson, and, and Terence asking if I would play Emily Dickinson. And I was just, I was completely overwhelmed, but I was less overwhelmed than I might have been because I thought, well, that's a very nice idea that will never happen. I've been paid a tremendous compliment and I'll, you know, I'll always have that to, you know, um, you know, keep in my pocket and sort of rub it when I'm feeling a little blue. Um, but then, you know, I mean, they, they pulled it off. It's just, it was amazing. And I, 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 I do feel a natural choice to play Emily Dickinson and I've, I've been a fan of hers. My mother was a huge fan of hers, and so I kind of grew up with her in the house with Julie Harris's Bell of Amherst, but also Julie Harris. We had a record in our house of Julia Harris reading some of the most famous poems and some of the better known 
letters and that we would listen to a lot. So it sort of, it penetrated my consciousness. And of course, there's a way that great writing that you actually hear over and over gets in your brain more than if you read it on the page. So, and I think as a, as a, as a young person, um, I really identified with the kind of um, shyness that she felt, but also how she felt that there were just great worlds inside her, if only you know, someone might take the trouble to go over and peer in. And I felt, I felt a lot like that when I was a kid. Well, it's a profoundly insular performance. You really feel like uh, the viewer is just looking right inside you at all times. How did you, um, what was your approach to the character? Because it, it really is, it, almost everything she's feeling just feels like it's right there on your face. Well, I think that's one of the things that Terrence th thought I would be good because things flicker across my face a lot. But I, 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 I do think that... Um, you know, it's very interesting. She's such a major poet, and she's beloved by so many people, certainly in the United States, but all over the world. And it's really interesting that the Belle of Amherst aside, no one has ever tried to make a movie about her before. Um, but I think it's probably how, how dauntingly interior her, her life was. But I think that, you know, it takes a filmmaker like Terrence to understand that just because you spend a lot of time indoors doesn't mean there and don't, don't travel very you know it doesn't and 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 your your acquaintanceship is is limit your your face-to-face -face acquaintanceship is is very very narrow and very limited in a certain way i think that terence understands that there can be very enormous very dramatic uh worlds in there so i think that certainly terence was very um focused on and i think he did a really great job of um, that these were people who live in a more formal time than we did, but they're, but that doesn't mean that they're, you know, from Madame Tussauds, you know, they have, they have feelings, arguably they have feelings even stronger than our feelings because there's less, uh, outlet for them. So I think that, and Terence is very, you know, very dramatic, emotional person. And so I think he made sure that we didn't stint on, on those exchanges being very impassioned ones. Um, uh, one more question about that before I, I want to turn it over to the audience, but um, it has a musical quality, it, certainly the way you recite the poetry. The poetry actually becomes the soundtrack for most of it, um, and there's also um, almost a rhythmic, balletic quality to the movements of the actors throughout the frames. Um, I'm just wondering, the, the, the working relationship and creating this really um, amazingly composed experience. But, but they're human beings, you know, they, they happen to be, she happens to be a genius, but they're human beings, you know, they, they get up, they get washed, they bake bread, they eat, all of those things. So it's got to be true. I mean, and I, I've said to everyone in all the films, I don't want you to act, I want you to be. And that's very, very, a very big thing to ask, because what actors do, they open their heart to you. And you have to respect that, but you have to open your heart to them as well and respond to what they do. Um, there were times when um, I couldn't call cut. I was so moved by the playing, particularly the death of the mother. I mean, I, uh, what my other um, producer, Roy, I said, will you go on and call? and call cut, I said, I cannot go on. I, I was so moved. And the monitor was still on. And he said, cut. And they all reacted, would you want to do it again? You think, how? How? That's what's extraordinary about actors. And, and I do love them, I must say, uh, for what they, the risks they take. And it's, but it's got to be true. And cinema captures not only the fleeting moment, it captures insincerity as well. And you can't get away from it. I mean, even in the greatest films, there's moments where you think, they haven't really pulled this off. I mean, Letter from an Unknown Woman, which is one of the great films of unrequited love. There's one point when um, Joan Fontaine puts her son to bed and begins to weep, but goes like this and turns away from the camera and she cries into the um, curtain and you know she couldn't cry. I mean, you, you can just tell it's not real crying. It's the only false moment in it, but it captures the fleeting moment of small things that become huge on a screen this size. Um, you have to go for that. If it's true, then you're all right. You'd know, you, you know you're on good ground. When it starts to be acted, you think, oh dear. Um, turning it over to the audience. Uh, yes, right here. Yep. Uh, yeah, there might, yes, 
the mic will be passed down. Congratulations to you both. Wonderful film. Uh, this question is for you, Cynthia. By the way, you look lovely. That's a lovely red. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I, as I was watching you, I, I was reminded of Dustin Hoffman because he, once upon a time he talked about how difficult it was for him as an actor to do Rain Man because he just laid himself so bare. And I wondered, could you talk a bit about how you prepared for this role as an actor and any sort of difficulty you had and, and just bringing us in, into your soul the way you did in this role. Thank you. Um, well, I think it was very helpful. We shot, uh, surprisingly, in Belgium. Um, so we were very removed from our families and I think that was actually helpful. Um, and, you know, Jennifer Ely and I have known each other for many years, although not well, but we have all sorts of funny connections. And so she and I were very close uh, during the filming, and that really helped. And I think Terrence, you know, chose um, wonderful actors, but who also had an enormous amount of enthusiasm for the project. And so I think we all were aware of this uh, rare experience we were being given, and we were treated with such sensitivity, and, and we, we treated each other that way. Um, and I guess, uh, as I said, uh, less nowadays, but I, I still remember the person that I was, the, the, the child and particularly the teenager that I was that, that related so strongly to Emily. Um, and so I, 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 I don't know, I feel like I have a lot of Emily inside me, even though she might be a little more, you know, buried nowadays in the functionality of my life as a mother of three, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and my, my best friend is a, is a very Emily Dickinson person. And um, yeah, I mean, I think that in this modern world, we either, it depends on how you think of it, we either don't have the luxury or we're able to avoid um, feeling things so, uh, so sensitively as if we as if our as if our one layer of skin had been removed but that's what we're all really like it just depends on on how how, how much armor we've put on and so i feel like i i that part of me is still is still um uh, is still very close to the surface even though it might be um it might be covered up for function hi guys thank you archer and from my near guy um uh, it's a beautiful film, uh, very well acted, of course. Uh, wonderful performance, Cynthia. Uh, question I had uh, uh, for Emily Dickinson's uh, work is um, it talks a lot about death and immortality, and the film deals with that subject. Um, but I think that's something all artists have in them. They, the desire to not die, to be remembered and be there. So. Uh, as filmmaker and an actor yourself, uh, can you uh, can you talk about your perspective on that and how that was part of this? Uh, I mean, making this film, how did that affect your thought process in, in that direction? The desire of a, an artist to live forever. That's rather hard to answer. Um, I love the poetry. But I, I, I also am moved by the tragedy of her not being recognized when she was um, alive. And I feel the same way about Anton Bruckner, who only had one um, success at the Eighth Symphony. The rest of the time, nobody would play them. Um, and, but what, also, what was also crucial is that she is to be human. She, they have, she has to be bitter, she has to be funny, she has to like to dance, she loves to play the piano. All those things have got to be there as well. Um, because at the end of the day, no matter how gifted someone is, um, to put it bluntly, we all go to the lavatory and we all fart in the bath. That's the truth of the matter. Um, but when somebody is denied recognition and they are artists, great artists like this, there's something in me which really warms to them and I want to fight, I want to fight the corn. It's too late in a way now, because she's dead and she won't know. Or if she does somehow know, I hope she's looking down and thinking, I feel a poem coming on. I think that wanting to live forever is not exclusive to 
artists. I mean, I think we all, we're all terrified of death if we only think about it and wish it would go away, <laughs> and it wasn't so. But I think the difference bet between Emily and most people in the world is that, you know, most of us do our best not to look over in that direction, you know, because life is very hard to live with the, with the knowledge of death, and both the knowledge that death exists and the uncertainty about when death will come, but I think that's one of the amazing things about Emily is her strength at looking so unstintingly at death and trying to, um, to make sense of it. So to me, the fact of wanting her verse to live after she dies, to me that's, that's not why she's so focused on death. I think she's focused on death because she's, she's so, so deeply curious about what, if anything, comes after, but also, um, you know, she's living her life with that knowledge, with keeping that knowledge in front of her face that most of us choose not to do. And we forget that uh, those days people died at home. Lots of people died, and they died very young. I mean, even in my time, in the 50s, my father died at home over two years. You know, so you were very close to it. You know, death now has been shunted uh, to the side. It, death only happens to other people. And unfortunately, it happens to us all. Hey, um, I have two questions, one for each of you. The first one for Mr. Davis. I really enjoy how you write your dialogue. And specifically, in the beginning of the picture, the speed of it. And I was curious as to, was, was that something that you thought about as you were writing and in development, or was that something that formed organically while uh, during filming? And for you, Miss Nixon, when you play characters who, in a broad sense, are extremely detached humans, what do you use to help you perform in scenes that require you, require, uh, require you to uh, deeply connect with your other actors? Well, Dialogue question first. The opening is very simple. It's, this, it's the oldest trick in the, the cinematic book. What do we want to know at the beginning of the film? We want to know who it's about and where it's set. Simple as that. You get that in the first two minutes. But if you start it when there are a group of people and you don't know who they are, and then you cut to someone who's got a, a major speech, you still don't know who it's about. Gradually, they fall away, and we now know who it's about. It's about it's, but it's a dead simple trick. I mean, it really is so simple. It's as simple as that, honestly. I, I think that... So one of the things that Terence has always said during this process, you know, for years, is that he didn't want it to be like a masterpiece theater stayed and, you know, humorless, that he wanted it to be funny. And um, so I think that um, having, having things move at the beginning at a, sh at, a, at a fast clip, first of all, one of the, the, main, the first thing that it shows is how, how smart these people are and how quickly they think, because they think quickly and they speak quickly. But I, uh, to me, it seems that the other reason he does that is because he's so deeply interested in the silences. And if you have a slow film with silence, then, then you have a lot of silences, everyone has left the theater. But if you have a quick film and then you have a silence, it's so powerful and it's so alive. Um, you've earned your silence, right? Um, but I think in terms of, but I, I'm, I'm very confused that you say that she's detached because she seems to me the least detached person there ever was, and that even at her, even when she, when she physically, you know, um, removes herself into her room and above the stairs where she won't come down, she's she's doing her best to physically remove herself because she's so, you know, vibrating with you know love and longing and anger and regret and uh, you know envy and a, a million different things. Um, and in terms of, you know, it's, uh, you just sort of try anything that works. As, as I said, it's very lucky that, that Jennifer and I were so devoted to each other during the filming. Um, but I also think you have to do a mix of trying your best to connect with the other actors, but also what I like to do is I like to, when we have a scene about a particular thing that might be difficult or painful, I like to engage my fellow actor in a conversation about things in my own life that um, 
remind me of the, what the scene is about. And then invariably, you know, actors like to talk and share and they'll talk about things themselves. So at least we'll, we'll then each be in the right kind of frame of mind when we will we'll, we'll bring all the things that from our own life that we feel similarly about to the scene that we're about to shoot. Hi, thank you very much. Um, Cynthia, you mentioned earlier about the modern world and for both of you, I'm just wondering, when we watch a film like this, how much has really changed in, in the modern world in terms of feminism and, and what she's saying? Um, in, the, in the modern world, all these fights that Emily has about as a woman being taken seriously, how, how different is the time that we're living in now? In the modern world, is um, the modern world very different from this, this film? I'm not sure, I'm not sure to be honest. Um, because the way, the way culture seems to be going, it would appear, at least on the surface, that we are all equal. It would appear, but whether that's the case or not, I don't know. Um, the problem with the modern world, and this is not an opinion, this is a prejudice. I'm, I'm a complete technophobe, I can't use anything. Um, and because it's now so technically based, I think it's almost a denial of life real life and also the, le the re level of narcissism um, is now so shocking. I mean, why do you want to take a photograph of yourself eating a meal? <laughs> why? Um, and then you watch television and it's even more depressing um, because uh, for the slightest thing everybody speaks in this messianic way that you know, if, if you start to do this workout you'll have a beach body. Well, supposing you don't want one what you do then? You know, um, I don't understand the modern world, and I certainly don't st understand it from a woman's point of view, because as you probably guessed, I'm not a woman. Um, so I've no idea about the modern world. I'm completely confused by it all the time. I think that um, things are very different now than they were. But I think that the thing is what was happening in the 19th century and the battles that people were fighting, you know, against slavery and um, for female, female, female emancipation as well. I think we're still fighting those very same battles. And I think those battles that were identified in the 19th century and earlier, but the 19th century was really a crystallizing time. Uh, I think they set the agenda and I think we still have the we have the same agenda, and we're still fighting for very similar things, although we might be farther down the road, but the, the people who think that those who, who are on the other side and think that those, those things are, that kind of equality is not, um, oh, you're making such a fuss, you know? I mean, the people who say to you, you're making such a fuss, would have said it in, 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 the, uh, in the 19th century in a very similar way. And to say that there was more violence used then as there, than there is now is not true. Um, and I think that, you know, obviously at a time when people couldn't, didn't know whether it was appropriate for a woman to, to be a published writer, and even the woman herself maybe was not sure about that, that's a very far cry when we were looking at our, our first female president. But the 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 forces that oppose that idea are still very strong and still very, very opposed. But also one, one mustn't forget that um, there were lots of ladies seminaries um, in this country far ahead of their time, you know, and you, you became a student, you graduated, and you became a teacher, and that you had to leave the job if you got married. But that was a lot of these seminaries. These women were very, very learned. The, the, um, I mean. Emily, and I think very, very much like the Brontes, they were very well read, very well read. So we shouldn't forget that either. But the question is, right, is their education, is it, for them it might have been very important, but for the people who were, you know, educating them or deciding their daughters should be educated, you know, 
was it ornamental or were they supposed to then go out and do something with it? And I mean, I think even Emily struggles with that, right? Mm -hmm. is, is it appropriate for me to publish and, and, and sell my yes, wares I, in the marketplace? I, I mean, what, one of the paradoxes is, you, you know, you get this good education and then what do you do? You can't get a job because, you know, that would be, that would be considered, you know, not the done thing. I mean, although it was not quite the case in England. I mean, it, with people like George Eliot. I mean, they were, they were known to be women. When it was revealed that Jane Eyre had been written by a woman, it caused a sensation. But she was then appreciated for the fact that she'd written this great novel. Because um, it was extraordinary for its time. That story is extraordinary. And she lived all her life in a Yorkshire parsonage. Well, I mean, we, we have Louisa May Alcott and, and Harriet Beecher Stowe. I mean, they, you know, amazing too. But again, very, very, very rare. And many people frowned upon what they did, too, so, yeah. But they were the pioneers. Yes, yes. I'm afraid we have to wrap it up there, but good place. Thank you so much, guys. Thank you. The Close-Up from the Film Society of Lincoln Center is produced by Michael Odemark. Our opening music is by Steelism. You can subscribe to The Close-Up on iTunes and Stitcher. The Film Society of Lincoln Center is a nonprofit arts organization based in New York City, supported by individuals just like you. Founded in 1969 to celebrate American and international cinema, the Film Society presents year-round programming recognizing established and emerging filmmakers, supporting important new work, and enhancing awareness, accessibility, and understanding of the moving image. To learn more about what we do and support the Film Society by becoming a member, visit filmlink.org, F-I-L-M-L-A-N-C.org. The Film Society of Lincoln Center. Film lives here.